the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888 Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. That's Perry McAuliffe at the debate last night telling all of Virginians that parents should not be involved in telling schools what they should be teaching. I'm joined by Molly Hemingway. I used to always say that Molly was on the Fox News with Brett Baer every evening that she was the founder of the Federalist. Now I'm just going to call her the, Badly, the Bradley Prize recipient because to me that's more important than everything else. It's the recognition that in the public square we have some heroes and Molly is one of them. I saw Molly at John Androzik's concert on, on Sunday night. Hello, Molly. It's been two days. Good to see you again on the radio. It's, it's great to see you. Wasn't that a great show? It was, and John is, it was the most somber of the shows. I've seen him six or seven times. Truly, the Afghanistan fiasco weighs on his heart heavily. Did you notice that? I thought it was so powerful to end the show that way, and I think he speaks to what so many people are feeling about the dishonorable manner in which we left that whole situation, if not how we handled much of our time there. And it, it, I think... Our political leaders don't understand how much that weighs on each of us. I, I believe we're all complicit and we've got to do things about it. I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to come back to General Miley and General Austin and General McKenzie yesterday. But I want to start, Molly, with the uncomfortable conversation I just had with Dr. Fauci. Now, I, I like Tony Fauci. I've admired him for a long time. But I just had the dad, I've got to take the keys away conversation with him because I believe he's an obstacle to public health now. And after... A year and a half of screw-up after screw-up. The testing fiasco, the J&J fiasco, no test on ivermectin, no research on masks on children, the most recent injection of equity into the booster discussion. I actually think it's an objective matter of fact that he's an obstacle to people getting the vaccine. Do you agree with me? There are a lot of problems with how we've handled the the communication of the public health situation that we're in. But I actually have had a problem with him. I agree with you. You know, I I have heard so many good things about him. I know people who speak highly of him. But when he first admitted that he was saying things that were not true in order to have a certain outcome, I actually thought that was such a major problem. Public health is about trust. It's about saying things that cut against, you know, your own argument sometimes if the facts lead you in a different way. And so, for me, I was there a long time before you were. Okay, so I've gotten there. I've gotten there. And I also began the interview with the very basic question. Kyrie Irving and a bunch of famous NBA players won't get vaccinated. Would you speak to them directly? And he didn't. Because that's politically incorrect to do. 
Uh, that that tells me. What's that tell you, Molly? Before I tell you what I think, what's that tell you? I, I don't know. That seems kind of political that he wouldn't, given that he's been willing to talk to in so many other uh, people. But I don't know. What do you think? Uh, well, I think he went around in a circle and he got as close as he could, but that he's very sensitive to Beltway uh, mores. And I actually think the whole FDA, CDC, public health bureaucracy, to a degree I never imagined, has been captured by Beltway gas. That they they breathe the air and it impacts them. And you know what I mean by Beltway gas. I do. And, you know, Hugh, there's also the issue of just the questions surrounding precisely how some of these bureaucrats, including Fauci, have handled the questions about the lab in, in Wuhan, what our relationship has been that through pass-through funding. I mean, these are very important issues to be completely transparent and open and honest about. And we don't have that. We oddly don't have enough pressure on people to get to the bottom of some of these issues about precisely how the entire world is suffering from this global pandemic and what could have been done differently to avoid it. Yeah, and I just think the doctor was extremely defensive this morning. We'll see what other people think about it. But let me go to the sub-issue there. The FDA and the CDC have advisory panels. They're supposed to pass on the science, Molly. Dr. Collins and Dr. Fauci admitted to me today they both involved, they took into their deliberations questions of equity, whether or not the United States was getting too much booster shot before the third world. Do the scientific advisory panels, in your view, have any role to play in the setting of international policy by the United States? It's at, I mean, first of all, I actually think that one of the problems we've had is pretending that science is some authority that can exist outside of other considerations or that just because someone's an expert on epidemiology, that therefore they're an expert in all public health or in all of the consequences of various decisions. But this seems different, which is bureaucrats who serve one people, one, one government and the citizens and people who are served by that government, have, making decisions on behalf of other people. That's definitely outside the well beyond their pay grade or their area of authority, which is not to say that you shouldn't think about how, uh, how something affects people in other countries, affects your overall health. But there is something that's about your national interest that must, must be predominant. Um, and just in general, some of these issues of equity have been just downright, you know, it's kind of a, a Trojan horse term that brings in all sorts of bad ideas. And I just saw that there was a complaint against New Hampshire for denying a vaccine to someone solely on the basis of race because they had determined something about equity, you know, at just a state level. So a lot of these things are fraught and they need to be um, there needs to be much more scrutiny. Uh, incredibly, the, beer, the the administrative state has grown so large, and I know you talk about this when you teach at Hillsdale, that it is suffocating the idea that Americans are a free people and we make decisions for ourselves. Molly, before I go to the Afghanistan fiasco and the testimony yesterday, I want to ask you about the Bradley Award. People don't know what a big deal that is. That is a huge deal. What did you talk about the night that you accepted the award? It, it was such a great thing to receive, and I like to think that I don't need any you know, uh, outside notice, but it was so wonderful to receive an award that now I've totally changed my mind and I now think awards are great. <laughs> um, but they also gave us a chance to just give a few minutes of remarks on whatever we wanted to. And so I took the opportunity to talk about the importance of courage, particularly in the conservative movement, which I think has a ton of people, has wonderful ideas and has had wonderful ideas for a long time, but has a deficit of courage in our leadership. Uh, particularly with people, you know, this is not just political leaders, but media figures 
who have too often been willing to accept defeat or negotiate terms of surrender have allowed progressivism to march through all of our institutions and how we really need to fight harder on behalf of the republic and these ideas. Yeah, bravo. Just yesterday, there was an announcement by Dave Wasserman, who writes uh, Redistrict, that the Republicans are playing defense in their redistricting and the Democrats are playing offense. So that Democrats in states like New York and Illinois are killing off every Republican district they can. And Republicans in states like um, Texas and uh, let me think that Florida is the outlier in a couple of other states where they control everything. They're being defensive, just trying to keep what they have and leave the Democrats alone. I think that goes back to Newt Gingrich versus uh, Bob, um, whatever his name was, Michael, uh, that the combative Republican is the Republican that conservatives want. They don't want the go along to get along conservative. Agree with me? Well, the central question in politics is who rules? And for some reason, a lot of people on the right think that's an icky question or that they're uncomfortable with what to do with any power that they have and they do a disservice to their their followers. And people are more than fed up with that. Uh, and by more than fed up with that, does it change voting patterns? Will, for example, Glenn Youngkin win in Virginia because people have now seen for a year what it means to have unified democratic rule in D.C.? I'm not sure about that. I live in Virginia, and Virginia is a pretty blue state. It voted by 10 points for for Joe Biden. So it's a huge lift. But I don't think there's been such a good chance for Republicans as Glenn Youngkin winning a statewide race in a while here. And a lot of that has to do with the failure of Democrats on the national level or the uh, Democratic candidate last night for some reason going on stage and saying that parents shouldn't be telling schools should be talking to schools about what to teach their children, which I don't know if there's any issue that animates Northern Virginians of all stripes right now so much as their dissatisfaction with what schools are doing in curriculum and other issues. Let me replay that. If anyone's just joining us, last night, Glenn Youngkin, Republican, uh, debated Terry McAuliffe, Democrat, and schools came up repeatedly. At one point, Terry McAuliffe said this. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they teach. Uh, Molly, he, it was a moment. It's a gaffe is when you say what you believe and you shouldn't, according to Michael Kinsley. That's true. That's what Terry McAuliffe believes. How do you react to that as a parent? Well, first off, that's exactly right. That This is kind of the issue of our day is whether we have government of, by, and for the people or whether we have this unaccountable administrative state that has two tiers of justice, two tiers of standards. I mean, it's really the issue at the national level. And I'm kind of glad we can talk about it at the state level as well. But I live in a very blue neighborhood and I talk with other parents in our neighborhood. They are so upset with their schools right now, even as they feel kind of trapped and that there are no other options. I just cannot imagine that Glenn Youngkin is going to do anything other than play that on loop on TV and YouTube ads from here till the election, because that is a great argument for Glenn Youngkin over Terry McAuliffe. And it also just speaks to how you know, I think Terry McAuliffe is having trouble as a Democratic candidate in a Democratic state because he is so tied with that, you know, the halls of power, the distance, the he's kind of a meh candidate for a lot of Democrats anyway, and that cannot have helped. Now, I, I have a belief in things called Chick-fil-A issues, Molly Hemingway. Those are issues that go back to the day then Chick-fil-A 
was being canceled. I think they were the first big cancel uh, because they were in favor of traditional marriage between one woman and one man. And so on a designated day that got no attention in the media, millions of people went to Chick-fil-A and bought sandwiches. The lines were around the block. Even though there was no media coverage, no one announced it. It just traveled by word of mouth. I believe CRT is a Chick-fil-A issue. That CRT is actually in every house being discussed quietly. People don't want to discuss it out in the air. And, you know, they don't want to get canceled. They don't want to get yelled at. But I think it's revolutionizing America. Do you agree or disagree with what is going on around kitchen tables? Oh, that, that's not even close. And it's also just going across normal political divisions. Nobody likes racism taught in their schools. And that's what CRT is. It's teaching kids to be race obsessed, to have dislike of other people based on their race, to have self-hatred based on race, to teach you know, little black girls that they're a victim who can never accomplish anything. No black parent wants that for their child. So it's something that cuts across racial lines, political divisions, socioeconomic divisions. And so it's, it's wonderful that people who discovered this racism that was being taught to their poor children, uh, that, they're, that they're elevating this issue and highlighting it so parents can fight back, contrary to what Terry McAuliffe says about them having no say in what their children learn, uh, complete confusion about what the role of education is and how it, how it uh, exists on behalf of the parents' uh, educating authority. But it, it's important. You know, it's a, it's a political gift to people who oppose it that, that this ham-fisted, um, awful racism is being taught. But it's also just important that we as a people who want to live together in peace and harmony with each other reject this and all other forms of racism that can do so much to tear down the bonds that we have together. Now, Chief Justice Roberts wrote, the way to end racism is to stop using race. And he's absolutely right. And I think that's why uh, we're going to be very happy with the decisions from the new court, the 6-3 court, on race and on religious liberty. Uh, Molly, before I turn to Afghanistan, will you tell people how big the Federalist is now? This is actually, like Prager University is to Dennis, the Federalist is to you. You're, you're accomplished in your own right. You're doing so much in your own right. But you've begun something that is actually changing the culture in the Federalist. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, we started the Federalist, our online magazine, Eight years ago, just a couple of years ago, a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated our eighth birthday, and we are so pleased with what we have done. We have millions of readers, and just great stuff on. It's very much like a common sense approach to to all the issues of politics and culture, uh, which we thought was missing from a lot of media, whether it was left wing media or right wing media. Just a place where people from throughout the country can. Um, you can highlight arguments that we're not having sway in D.C. And I think what we've seen in the last eight years is this great pushback on the calcified, you know, goldfish situation that was happening in D.C. with people saying, we've had enough, we finally want government accountable to us, we want good ideas, and I'm just thrilled that we've been able to play such a big part in that. Well, it's organic growth and it's uh, exponential growth is because, of, is because legacy media has not changed fast enough. And because legacy media is often accused by the left of doing both sidesism, uh, they actually don't do that. They don't give our side much oxygen at all, if any. And they usually handicap us when we do talk. The Federalist has taken over. That brings me to the Presidential Debate Commission, which is 
I'm like Cato the Elder when it comes to Carthage, and the, the Presidential Debate Commission must be destroyed. Molly, do you think you could run a presidential debate fairly? I, I'm not sure if that's my particular skill set, but I cannot believe I have I've been frustrated with the Presidential Debate Commission for a long time. Last year was an absolute debacle. I mean, they didn't even host a presidential debate until like a month after people started voting. That's that's unacceptable. And when they actually received a request to have an event, uh, to have a debate earlier, once we radically changed all our voting laws to enable much quicker voting, they declined that. They were supposed to have a foreign policy debate. They just decided not to do it because they didn't like President Trump. Bob Dole, I don't know if you remember what he said last year. He said, I know and like all the Republicans on the Presidential Debate Commission, and I can tell you they all hate Donald Trump. Yes. And he's like, that's no way to run things. But it's been bad for a long time. You've had moderators getting involved. I think the bigger problem is we, for some reason, allow media figures to moderate debates, even though they've become so highly partisan. And there's a time when the media were just biased and, and people were complaining about that going back to Eisenhower. But like in the last five years, they've gone into outright propaganda and censorship. They kill stories they don't agree with. They invent stories that are fake. They're actively working on behalf of one political party. They have no role in debate. They should have no role in debate. They're now, not if, moderate. They can't moderate. If they had a debate panel of Molly Hemingway and Rachel Maddow and Don Lemon and Hugh Hewitt, that would be a fair and interesting debate panel for partisans, two of them from the left and avowedly so, and two of them from the center right and avowedly so. And we would ask questions from our wheelhouse representing those people who follow us either on the air, who read you, et cetera. The debate commission will never get there. They are older than look they're I'm old. They're older than dirt. They're going to be we're going to find their fossils pretty soon. And the debate commission has got to go. Now, let's get to Afghanistan. Molly, what happened there? How do you understand the tragedy of Afghanistan after 20 years, the Taliban hanging people by cranes, American citizens abandoned, green card holders by the thousands there, hundreds of thousands of Afghans who work for us, including the interpreters, abandoned to the Taliban justice? How did America lose uniquely and so shamefully in Afghanistan? Well, one thing I think both sides of this argument have failed to address at and not sufficiently, is how so much of the problems that we faced in the last year had something to do with how we had been waging our operation there for a long time. Going into Afghanistan was noble. Our efforts initially were great. We had, we had massive success. As we changed into a nation-building exercise, we never quite understood Afghanistan at the level we should. We saw that in how we all claim we were surprised, although I don't think anybody should have been surprised at how quickly everything fell. And it was an opportunity for people to uh, be in a region, have very low accountability. I don't know if you ever read those CIGAR Inspector General reports about what was happening in Afghanistan, but just massive amounts of corruption and fraud and waste and abuse to the tune of 30% of our taxpayer dollars that were there. And then as it kept going and nobody wanted to deal with the reality that, you know, we, we pushed everybody into Pakistan, but then we didn't want to deal with the reality that Pakistan was harboring these people. We just kind of kept an operation going at such a high expense level in terms of body count and money. Um, and then finally, when we exit, it, you know, there is some truth to the argument it was going to be messy no matter what happened. That does not in any way excuse the absolutely ridiculous strategy that was put into play for how to handle the departure. 
people had come to agreement largely in a bipartisan fashion about the need to uh, reorient toward to a different threat. The idea that we would leave in the manner we did uh, is absurd. And what struck me about yesterday is those were people who knew they were never going to be held accountable for mismanaging this process. They didn't even seem to have a slight worry about it. And they shouldn't because we no longer hold people accountable for massive failure, including the deaths of 13 uh, soldiers and service members because of how we botched this. Um, But there is a lot of fatherhood to that failure, and it's not just those three men that we saw testifying yesterday. Well, it is primarily, and this is where I want to end, Joe Biden. I do not believe Donald Trump, because of his sensitivity to media, if for no other reason, would have allowed a catastrophe to befall Afghanistan. He would not have left Americans behind. He obsessed over getting every American home. He brought home 50 Americans over the course of four years from places as remote as North Korea and Yemen. He never gave up. He would never have left America. That would not have happened. Whether people hate him or love him, that wouldn't have happened. But put Donald Trump aside and talk to me about Joe Biden, because Ross Douthat raised in The New York Times something I raised in The Washington Post two weeks ago, and that is, I believe the president is infirm. That doesn't mean he has dementia. That doesn't mean he has Alzheimer's. It just means he's old. And as Harvey Mansfield said on this program last week, when you get old, you lose energy and you um, you try and conserve energy for those things which matter the most to you. And you simply turn away from that which doesn't. It's a part of aging. He simply closed the door on Afghanistan. He didn't want to bother with it. That's my assumption. Do you think he's infirm and simply closing the book on stuff he doesn't have the energy to deal with? I think politically he felt boxed in on Afghanistan. He may not have agreed with Trump's decision to leave, but he knew that the public would not support him staying. And so he was kind of just stubborn about it. But... Clearly, something is going on there. I mean, I know that you probably experienced this, too, Hugh. Like, one of the conversations that people have regularly is just wondering who's running things in the Biden White House. In other words, people just kind of accept the, uh, they accept the assumption that it's not Joe Biden, so who is it? And you see it in just the lack of energy, as you said. I don't, you know, I, I pray I'm doing as well as Joe Biden is when I'm his age, but a lot of my friends who are his age say that there are declines that happen there and that it's and fatigue and, and uh, the mental acuity and all these things are just like natural part of aging. But I worry about it. I mean, sometimes at night when he's giving speeches or otherwise, it doesn't seem like he's fully in control. I want him to give speeches during the day for the sake of our foreign adversaries seeing him <laughs> at his at his best. But um, but. Yeah, it seems to be something, but I, I really don't know what's going on there, and I, I'm a little concerned about how we aren't allowed to really have the types of conversations we need to be having about whether he has the support he needs. And you look at the comparison with the absolutely hysterical coverage of his predecessor and the constant speculation about his health, uh, and you know, whatever you want to say about the two men, there's no question that Donald Trump has a lot more energy than Joe Biden does and that he's able to handle much more questioning from the press, uh, answering questions regularly from them. We're not seeing that now, but you're not allowed to talk about it too much. 
You know, Molly, President Trump was ignorant of many things. Uh, and ignorant doesn't mean stupid. It just means he never crossed them. It's like I had a conversation with Jesse McCarthy last week, a professor at Harvard of African-American studies. And I'm ignorant of the novels of Toni Morrison. And I confess to that. I just haven't read Toni Morrison. He was aghast. And I, so I'll read some Toni Morrison. Being ignorant isn't, isn't being incapacitated. I worry about infirmity and our adversaries, and they are many, wondering whether now is the time to press an advantage against the United States. Do you worry about what the CCP will do vis-a-vis Taiwan after the Olympics? I'm going to worry about the situation. I worry in general about China's, adver- China's seemingly seeming interest in pressing some issues with their adversaries. I... I'm also worried about us getting into a hot war with China. I mean, we, I think it's best if we handle things through economic um, opposition and encouragement and pressuring campaigns. We do not want to get in a hot war, and we have to be careful in how we talk about what our red lines are and what we're willing to do. Uh, but it's clear that we also just need to be focused in the region and focused on uh, building up our our um, allies in the region. Last, last question, Molly. You're way too young to remember 1979 the way that I do. It was the Nader. Uh, you know, there are Cubans all over Africa, the Iranian Revolution, the Russians in Afghanistan, Jimmy Carter as president. Along comes Reagan. Do you think we get another Reagan, or does President Trump present an insurmountable obstacle to a normal succession? Where do you see the GOP and the conservative movement within it going forward? Oh, I think it's like such a fascinating thing right now to think about this. Uh, President Trump, obviously the establishment GOP doesn't like him, but they're doing everything wrong <laughs> to make it so that he will not go away for another you know, uh, seven years. And I think he would be happy not to run again if he felt that the party was taking all the good that he did and running with it, taking his policy ideas and showing some fight. And instead, the Republican Party seems to not be learning what it, how, how to win elections, what, you know, the good that Donald Trump taught them. And so I feel like they're, they're, uh, they're getting everything back to a situation where he might feel compelled to run again, which is the one thing that they don't want. But they're not presenting an alternative to their voters that would, that would take away the, um, the shininess of a potential Trump run again. So uh, it's an interesting time. There are, though, I think a lot of really good people out there um, who voters are testing the waters with. And so we'll see. And I mean, obviously, Ron DeSantis would be chief among them and seems to have the policy chops, the courage to take on the corrupt media and a lot of what people like in Trump, including that he seems to annoy all the right people. Yeah, combativeness is key. And I think uh, DeSantis, Cotton, Pompeo, Tim Scott, Chris Christie, you've got to be combative the way the Federalist is to win. You've got to play to win, not to get people angry. You've got to play to win. Molly, you play to win. The Federalist is winning. I appreciate your taking time with me today. Congratulations again on the Bradley Award. That's a big deal. And on the growth of the Federalist. Come back soon. Thank you, Hugh. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. 
Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.